Real quick, I gotta let you in on a testing secret. With regulations and breaches on the rise, production data is no longer safe or legal for developers to use. And creating test data in-house is a complex chore that eats away valuable time. That's where Tonic comes in. They make it possible to create a true mirror of production by safely and realistically mimicking production data. So you can work on real product and steer clear of surprises at release time. Learn more at tonic.ai slash code story. It doesn't matter how good the thing you've made is, if you can't connect with your audience, and crucially, I'd say, connect with the influential part of your audience, then it won't go anywhere. But developers don't trust ads. They trust the other developers they talk to. So you've got to get on their radar. Actually, it being a good product is way less important than uh, the, the other factors. And that's a sad truth. None of those things will matter if you can't get someone's attention. It's the truth that you don't need to make the best. You just need to get the right people I'm Max Hell, and I'm CEO at T. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the backhand. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. Took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, pain. we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mark. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today, how Max Howell has created a cross-platform package manager on Web3, so you can say goodbye to the slow and clunky. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-sourced edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there, too. Terso makes this easy, utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the Data Edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Max Howell did well in school and was presented with the problem that he didn't know what to do with himself. At that time, software wasn't cool, so he studied chemistry and started out at a job in that industry. Within three months, he was disenchanted with the career path and decided to stop going to work. Post-installing Linux on his home computer, he started coding and fell in love. Outside of tech, he's married with a young son, and he enjoys a good beer, cooking a steak, and seeing how new everything is interpreted through his son's eyes. Max is the creator of Homebrew, the widely used package manager, which is probably installed on your computer right now. After the success of the tool, he wanted to figure out a way to continue to bring value to open source and power digital money in the Web3 space. This is the creation story of T. Homebrew. 
Homebrew was my first, like, really successful open source project. It got very big very quickly. It was just great. I loved it. I, I had made something that, at the time, thousands of people found indispensable, and they wanted it to improve, and they wanted to help improve it, and it was just easily the most enjoyable and most rewarding thing I could work on at the time. I didn't have a lot of money saved up, and it was only six or seven months before I had, a, had nothing left in my bank, and so I got another job contracting worth a tweet day, actually. That was a London-based startup. Did their Android and iPhone apps. The truth is, I, look, I worked on Homebrew a lot while I was there, and eventually quit to continue working on Homebrew and other open-source projects. And this is just like my career has cycled this way. All these years, I've been trying to figure out how I could not continue that cycle. And the idea that open source is this incredibly valuable thing that doesn't actually show that value to its creators. It's not a new idea or anything. Everyone talks about it here and there. Like Everyone who works in development knows that open source has become 95% of all software with this tiny little proprietary slither on top of almost all the time. So I was in between jobs again a couple of years ago trying to figure out how I could maybe this time figure out how to work on open source full time. And uh, that's when I came up with the idea for T. It's never something that really piqued my interest, crypto stuff. The way that there's so much power in how digital money enshrining how the token or, or whatever crypto is like moves around the system and like building up these economic systems. And one evening I had this realization about the nature of package managers and all the connections between all the different open source packages and which ones matter, which ones matter the most and how value could be attributed into that graph, into that system, based on the understanding that a package manager has. So it was a golden moment of understanding, actually, and I managed to raise a few million that, that year. And then since then, we've raised 18 overall. And we've been building it for over a year now, gearing up for what is called like the protocol release, probably early next year. Let's dive into what you might consider the MVP of T then. So tell me about what would be the first version of T and how long it took you to build and what sort of tools do you use to bring it to life? In the world of blockchain technologies, you always have a test now. The thing about these smart contracts is they're somewhat immune. Like you can design upgrade parts into them, but if it starts to go wrong, correcting it is very difficult. So you really have to do it properly. And I love this like way that you have to like just get it right. And it encourages you to make things as simple as possible so that you understand how it's gonna work. You're also building up this like huge understanding of the game theory of it is fascinating. You know people are going to attack your system. They're going to try and extract all the token out of it for themselves. And you have to figure out how to avoid that. We will show the world what they could be receiving in rewards from the T-Protocol. We'll have a website up and we've already cataloged like the packages. We've done the major ones like NPN, PyPy, Cargo. So you'll be able to go there as an open source maintainer and see like how your open source is being, in theory, rewarded by the system. And then we'll encourage you to onboard to it. 
that's the MVP for me. It's like getting as many of these open source projects on board. And so as, as a result, the MVP is pretty, pretty well fleshed out. The initial version has this concept of onboarding open source maintainers and then allowing uh, other people, other users to participate in that protocol by putting token down on top of the project. We call it steeping, a riff off the idea of staking. So if you know anything about proof-of-stake blockchains, like Ethereum recently transitioned to one, participants stake token into that system and they're basically putting it at risk. They're saying that this token could be taken away from them if they don't participate in the, the process correctly. So users and open source maintainers have to steep into the system to show that they are committed to the security of this network. Key part of the protocol, of course, is the understanding of the different importances of different open source projects. But some of the most important pieces are very deep in the stack. Anyone who maintains the Node project nowadays knows that it's easy for it to get to 10,000 dependencies. Our protocol understands which of those are the most important. If they dis- which ones, if they disappeared, would have the, the biggest and most profound impact on the internet and all software as we know it. When you steep against the package, we consider that like steeping against like what we call favorites, because these are the projects that get on the hacker news and you hear about them. But those projects have chosen their dependencies, and those dependencies have chosen their dependencies. And all of that stuff is incredibly important. When you hear about like massive open source exploits happening, it's usually deeper. Like last year, there was Log4j, which was that logging framework for a Java, a massive exploit which impacted huge amounts of the enterprise world. And yet, they're still basically an unfunded project. They said, okay, we'll fix these bugs, but maybe some of these enterprise outfits that build like profitable enterprises on top of our open source could consider some sort of donation. It basically still doesn't happen. And part of the reason donations don't work is because these big enterprises are using 50,000 open source packages. How are they going to compensate all of those packages? So that's another reason I really like what we're doing, because we're essentially adding this layer of automation, which I really don't see how you can do that with anything apart from crypto. It just makes a whole category of things simpler, just through the layers of automation. In fact, this thing's going to run autonomously, but then off it goes and it's controlled by the participants of it. It's so beautifully open source, like throughout every part of it. It just fills me with joy. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble? Super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. 
That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash code story. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done, i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero-trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. Let's move forward then. So from that point, you're going to, you know, release the protocol, right, next next year or in a certain time frame. And um, once you get to that point, or maybe even during the time right now, you're going to have to, you know, progress the product and mature it in a certain way. And, you know, open source has a, has a really a more fun way to do this, I would say. Um, but I'm curious about how you go about or how you will go about building your roadmap. And I'm curious about, you know, how you're going to decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to interject into T. We have some cool ideas, but I think like firstly, I just want to talk about how cool the way governance works with uh, crypto projects is. And uh, how I really feel it's going to fit quite elegantly onto existing ways that open source projects govern themselves. And I actually fix some of the problems. With what we're building, token holders are the ones who will have voting rights. The people who are most invested in the success of the T-Protocol and how it's going to fix open source will be the ones that have the voting power. That means that the community really does participate very actively in how things go forwards. Now, initially, we will hold a lot of the power because we want to make sure that everything goes right. It's much similar to like how I ruled homebrew with an iron fist for the first year, several years. I think it's really necessary that the people who really thought most carefully about what they're trying to build continue to hold that kind of uh, control until the community really has built itself up and people are there to understand how what you have built and what all of you have built together. We through that took a couple of years, but it, it, after a couple of years, I saw how the people who had really stepped up understood what homebrew was meant to be. It's sometimes better than I did. It was after a few years that I handed the whole thing over to the community. It used to be on my username on GitHub, right? MXCL slash homebrew. And it was the biggest repository on GitHub. So with uh, T, it'll be the same process. For, at first, we will have a lot of governing rights, but we have it programmed into the protocol itself to take away our rights with time and give them to the people who are most concerned 
with the viability of the open source ecosystem. I love that part. And I think that, as I say, could fix the governance issues that open source projects have nowadays. Rust had some issues just the last couple of weeks with how bare governance is going. And I feel that allowing the people who are most concerned with the project and have the most understanding to have votes rather than having like a centralized democracy like some of these projects do fixes that. So I'm excited about that. And so one of the things we, we will release with is the suggestion that every project that onboards forms a DAO, decentralized autonomous organization. So the wallet that the token goes to is not a person's wallet, but a multi-seek wallet for a smart contract that represents how the governance of that project is going to work. So anyone can see how the token that goes to that project is going to be distributed and what things they have in place in order to ensure that there is like incentives for people to join the project or submit pull requests, how they're going to divvy out that token. Are they going to keep some in reserve so that they can have bounties? Are they going to make sure that translation efforts are similarly rewarded to code efforts? It's all there. And also, it can be changed by votes in the DAO based on who is steeping against your project. In the future, we have uh, great ideas that I hope we'll get to, to do. And... And part of the reason we're not doing them initially is because I want the community to join in on some of these ideas. Like one, for example, is the idea that if your open source project has security problems, then we have a system in place to have people report them and then take pieces of your stake. It's called slashing, essentially. Finally, open source is properly incentivized to ensure that it's like incredibly important infrastructure is properly secured. Despite the fact for years we've always said in open source that security through obscurity is not security, I think the truth is when you release your source code, uh, the bad people are more incentivized to find the security exploits than the good people. And uh, we're hoping that we can help fix that by properly incentivizing uh, people who might otherwise try to exploit this open source. Let's face it, the probably hundreds and maybe even thousands of exploits out there right now that are being exploited in open source and people don't really know like eventually after 10 years or so someone notices and goes oh well here's the fix for this security problem i noticed that it's been around for more than 10 years in the open i also quite read one of the fix semantic versioning it's enforced firearm protocol if you break semantic versioning then you'll be slashed because Open source isn't incentivized to do that properly. What we're doing at T is, is really just in fixing the incentive structure for this incredibly important foundation technology and software. And I couldn't be more excited to see how the world's going to receive it. Are you seeing we and us, you know, a few times? And I'm curious about, you know, how you built your team and how you're going about building your team, um, you know, as you you know, create the protocol and, and the and the foundation of the tool. And I'm curious about what you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you. Initially, hiring was quite slow as we, it's so important to pick the right people that embody the company values, company culture that you want to nurture. Like, I really feel that if you allow 
any kind of community to uh, veer off the course you have personally set, it's just going to fail. And that's not because I know the best culture or I have the best values. It's because I'm the person who brought vision together. And it's really important that it goes in that direction because uh, I don't know how to run it any other way. The early days are, uh, are key to making sure that you build something that's going to survive. But we got to the point now where those values are like embodied in what we're doing. And so like hiring has gone a lot faster because the people that I'm delegating to hire and know what kind of qualities they're looking for. Like for me, the qualities that I admire, and as I say, they're really not the only way. And I, I'm not egotistic was to think it's the only way you can do things. It's like, so it's the only way I know how to do things. When I came into open source and products in general, I just always try to make them so that when people use them, they feel the polish. That they could see that I sweated all the details. I thought about all the edge cases and I cared about their experience. I'm pretty sure that a lot of the reasons that Bruce succeeded were, were that kind of attitude. Like open source at the time especially wasn't used to people putting in that much time. And Bruce was very lovingly paced. I put a lot of me into it and uh, I'm very proud of what happened. I'm also a believer in results over the amount of work you're doing. Now, I, I do a lot of work, but... I don't expect people who work with me to have that same kind of attitude. I just care about what they produce. If they're not producing, then we start to have a problem, but don't mind about hours in general otherwise. So yeah, we built that up and at this point we're large, like it's scary actually. Uh, I think we're 25. So we're starting to stop being, being a lean startup and we've had to embody, start enforcing a lot more processed you just need it once you've expanded beyond even just 10 people, honestly. Recently, our marketing department's really started to ramp up because we need to market the hell out of it over the next six to nine months. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vassell edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite and a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for Code Story listeners. Head over to terso.tech/slash code story and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O.tech/slash code story. Terso, welcome to the Data Edge. This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. If you run cloud native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud costs, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, CastAI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. 
Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. My, my next question is, is going to be interesting, and, and I, I kind of have an idea of where maybe you're going to go based on, you know, how you've built or how you've, you've talked about building homebrew and tea and the Web3 kind of backbone. But did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? Or is there any sort of area where you're having to fight it as you grow? You, you've got to build it to scale correctly with crypto. It's such an unforgiving area, but we have like multiple pieces. So like the package manager part, I usually don't worry about scaling that sort of tool until you start to feel it. So it is built to scale, but that's only because it doesn't require much. Like most of it's just storing packages in a CDN. And the protocol side, like the piece that is going to need to scale most effectively is our, our ranking engine. So we use uh, a version of Google's PageRank to figure out the value of open source projects and how they rank relative to each other. And we call it T-Rank. The idea being that the dependency data and a lot of other factors, it turns out. I naively went into this thinking, oh, the dependency data is all you need in order to figure out the rankings. Surely. And then I brought in some experts in writing protocols and building out these kinds of uh, systems. They were like, that's not enough because game theory and how people are going to try and exploit the system. The engine that calculates the rank has to be able to do it once a day for all of open source. It's an interesting scaling problem because it's a huge tree and there's an awful lot of connections in it. So it takes hours. Effectively, it's an oracle. So this stuff isn't done on chain. It would be way too expensive. So there's various ways to calculate the data then put that back into the chain. So far, it's fine, and it should continue to be fine. And like also another like key part of that is like initially uh, we're going to be running the only node that does that, but that's like completely unsuitable in space, both as uh, something to open source the open source community and also the protocol and blockchain communities. Uh, everyone wants these things to be as decentralized as possible. Over time, we will need to. Uh, redo it and make it so that other people can run these nodes and so that they're incentivized to run the nodes and so that all fits into the protocol itself so yeah definitely the biggest scaling problems will be there otherwise yeah we're using existing blockchain technologies that have been built by great open source developers we don't have many other issues so as you step out on the balcony you look across all that you've built thus far what are you most proud of Homebrew is always going to be my most proud creation. Of course, like, I'll never make something as big as that again, probably. And a tea could be, and I really hope that it will become something that almost all open source uses. I don't, don't know if I could really overcome the pride I felt with producing that. There was, there was something about it as I built it. I just knew that it was going to work, and that people were going to use it, and that people were going to love it. Like, it's almost certainly the project with the most unique contributors and time of any software that exists and uh, I just figured out how to take game it essentially making people want to participate okay let's flip the script a little bit tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it you know, one of the company values that I, I put up for people is um, strong opinions Lucy held so in general I come across in open source and in work as uh, it needs to be done this way 
but I'm willing to go back on it if proved wrong. And I always try to leave the comments I'm leaving in a, in a way that people feel they can speak up. So with Broome, there were definitely many times when I was like, no, we're not doing that. And in the end, I'd relent. And I'd go back and find every ticket and say, hey, we're going to do it this way now. Thanks for your input. You were instrumental in making sure we came to the right decision. So important with open source to nurture that community. With T, I think we released the package manager component too early. We released it last November, you know, partly because I had a web summit presentation. They, uh, we managed to get them to have me on. And so we were like, should we launch the package manager at the same time? It seemed like a good idea. But it was too early. So there, were, there was many like pieces to it, which the design was wrong. It was doing too much. Changelog featured it in their newsletter. And they said, is it doing too much? All these different things. I, I finally released version one alpha and it's so refined relative to what it was. It hadn't found its shape in my mind yet. Also, uh, it, was, it did too much. F- finding the product fits, like, there's a lot of package managers now. <laughs> when I did Brew, there wasn't nearly as many. So how do you make a new package manager that actually is worthy of people nowadays? And what some of the comments we get were like, you say this is like a spiritual successor to Brew, but what's wrong with Brew? And I didn't have a good answer. Didn't have a good answer for what's wrong with Brew because there isn't really anything majorly wrong with Brew. Over the last nine months, I've figured out how to make something that's useful and new. And so the uh, the T package manager is now is more a package runner. It's more like MPX or PipX or GemX. These tools that make it so you can run things from the open source ecosystems that they represent are super easy and create environments with them and then build on top of that so it's a really great tool for any situation where you might need to just run like things it's a cross-platform single buyer you can download create these environments run tooling create scripts that can use anything in open source effectively and i think like it, it now has a position and it, it's a useful tool in its own right and i think now the way that we can talk about it allows people to understand why it makes sense for them to integrate that into their toolkit. It was never vital that the package manager would be great because uh, we've got this two-pronged approach here and the most important thing that we're doing at T by far is our work on the protocol. Package manager was always going to be a bonus. Okay, Max, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. In terms of as a, how I became as a software developer, I was influenced heavily by Linus Torvalds. As I was discovering open source, I discovered that a lot of the communities were very badly governed. There was mailing lists I followed. I'm thinking especially of uh, KDE, which is the KE desktop environment, which is one of the windowing environments on Linux still exists. And at the time, I, I followed all these lists and I saw how people would spend weeks arguing over minutia and then I'd go and read the, the Linux kernel mailing list and saw how he rules it with an iron fist he wasn't afraid to tell people that their ideas sucked like see nowadays that's a lot less acceptable it was extremely effective he was extremely effective the Linux kernel owes him everything really like the fact that Linux is just so 
vastly used nowadays is because he formed the culture in his mind. So the community evolved to manage the kernel in a way that worked, that he could nurture, that was successful. But I also saw how projects, at least early on, need need a leader. They need someone who can say no. And all the mailing lists I was following where that wasn't happening were the ones where the projects were just flailing or not helping this idea of the Linux desktop, which at the time everyone wanted Windows to be replaced by Linux. So he was very influential to me. And like certainly when Drew started to become popular, I wasn't afraid to say no, but I always explained myself. And I tried not to be as nasty as he was, although uh, <laughs> there was times where I wasn't on my best behavior. So after that, like Steve Jobs was very uh, influential to me. I was very sad when he died. I learned a lot about excellence and how you can get more out of the people you're working with if you just show them how to do excellent work and also that you, you have expectations that are maybe higher than they used to. I've always loved like the way Apple designs things. I don't think they do the same anymore. They had very thoughtfully considered how to arrange files and directories and folders, how installations work. Like I, I just remember how, learning that you installed that by just dragging a folder <laughs> And everything was contained within that. And at the time, I was very into like how package managers on Linux worked because everyone kind of gets that. And I love the idea of like, containerizing that. And that was just so thoughtful again, I felt. Well, Max, last question. So you're getting on a plane and sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit several times? It doesn't matter how good the thing you've made is. If you can't connect with your audience, and crucially, I'd say, connect with the influential part of your audience, then it won't go anywhere. I've had several open source projects where they were really good, but I just never managed to put the right time into the the way I, I connected with the community. I hope we had this key moment because I open sourced it and then no one noticed for six, seven weeks. Even though I was tweeting about it, even though I was telling my friends and things. One day, someone I followed on Twitter, Simon Willison, who's much more of an influencer than he was then, but he was still quite influential, tweeted a question about compiling software for Mac. And obviously, I just built a thing that was very useful. He piping software for Mac, and he'd made a, a question on Stack Overflow, so I answered the question, a very detailed answer. And then at the end, I pitched Homebrew. I talked about all the things that Homebrew did during that answer, and then at the end, I was like, if you liked all that, I actually built it. Here you go. And because of that moment, Homebrew became successful. If it hadn't been for that, I would have needed another similar moment. But developers don't trust ads. They trust the other developers they talk to. So you've got to get on their radar. It's just it's a key part of making something successful. And yeah, it needs to be a good product and it needs to fit the market niche you've identified and it has to work well. But none of those things will matter if you can't get someone's attention. And certainly I've learned over the years that actually it being a good product is way less important than uh, the, the other factors. And that's a sad truth. 
I still strive to make the best products I can. It's the truth that you don't need to make the best. You just need to get the right people. Well, that's fantastic advice. Well, Max, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of tea. Pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite.